This message comes from NPR sponsor Jobs Ohio. Ohio's business-friendly climate and people-friendly quality of life make it an ideal environment for new and growing businesses to thrive. Visit ohioisforleaders.com to learn more. The way that the dot-com was at the time was, you know, eyeballs. It was like everything was about, like, growth and the traffic. And there was no discussion or talk about revenue. And then the bubble burst. And all of a sudden, it went from spend, spend, spend to, oh, my gosh, we need to fire the team. So you guys had to lay off more than half of the people who worked at the company. Mm -hmm. We went down from 73 to 28. That was one of the toughest days in my career, even to this point. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. Guy Raz, and on the show today, how two friends from college pioneered the idea for online invitations and then rode the ups and downs of the dot-com bubble with their company, Evite. If you were to write a business idea in haiku form, it would go something like this. It solves a problem, super easy to explain, people will use it. And back in the early days of the World Wide Web, there were a lot of problems that were ripe for solving, including paper, or rather, how to use less of it. Think about the last time you wrote a letter on paper, or filled out a registration form with a pen, or filed a physical document into a metal filing cabinet, right? For the most part, email and electronic documents have replaced paper. Same with invitations. Most of the invites I get, and I'm pretty sure you get, come in an email. And for that simple convenience, you can thank Selena Tabakawala. Because back in the late 1990s, Selena and her friend Al Lieb wrote the code that would power the first online invitation business, Evite. And for a time, Evite was a darling of the dot-com bubble. Within two years of its founding, it was valued at around $150 million. Of course, when the bubble burst in 2000, so did Evite's value. But unlike other dot-com-era companies such as Cosmo or Pets.com or Lycos or GeoCities, Evite hung in there, and it's still around today. In fact, invitations from Evite reach more than 100 million people a year. The company is now owned by Liberty Media, and while it has tons of competitors, Evite is still one of the biggest players in online invitations. As for Selena Tabakawala, She's still an important name in Silicon Valley. She's become a kind of role model for women and girls who want to get into tech. In fact, back when she was a kid, she loved computers. She was obsessed with them. She grew up in Ramsey, New Jersey, the daughter of two immigrants from India. From my parents' perspective, if you ask who I was, I mean, I was always that person, like, waving my hand in the air with the answer in class, which I think annoyed a lot of my teachers most of the time. Um, I love to read. I am a terrible athlete, um, but I always loved team sports, and it was something that was important to me. I actually was voted basketball captain of my Ramsey High School basketball team, but not because of my athletic ability, but only because I built a stats program in high school to help the other players <laughs> shoot better. Wow. You like built a stats program on 
your home computer? I did. It was on the OmniPro database, and I used to come home after every game and, like, database who shot from where, and then uh, print out a sheet the next day and give it to the good players. <laughs> and uh, they eventually decided that uh, they wanted me to be their captain, which was very funny because I'd only play the last two minutes of the game, either if we were really up or really behind. <laughs> How did you get into computers as a kid? So it was really from the influence of my dad. He started off as a punch card programmer for a company called EDS. And he was there for, I think, about 25 years. And he rose from being this punch card programmer to a multimedia president uh, a couple levels away from the CEO of this huge organization. Hmm. And he always exposed us to technology. When he would take us to work every so often, we would see that entire, you know, it was a huge mainframes and servers. And you'd walk in and you'd see all the computers and the technology. And it was just always exciting to me. And so he brought a computer home. Um, probably when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. And I got excited about coding and starting to build things. And then my mom schlepped me to summer coding camps in all different places across New Jersey to expose me to it more. I mean, this is before, like now, of course, every parent's like, I want my kid to learn how to code. But like in the sort of early mid 80s, this that was not the thing. What were you learning? What was the code? Um, so I'm pretty sure it was Logo and Basic at the time. Um, and then I do remember learning Pascal hmm. um, when I was in middle school. Were you often one of the only girls in those classes? Definitely. And if I look back now, I think about that. You know, I hmm. remember I took the AP computer science class in my high school, and I'm pretty sure I was the only girl in class. But it never occurred to me at the time. Do you remember, like, even as a teenager, thinking... Like when you ask a teenager, what do you want to be when you grew up? And, you know, some of them have an answer and some of them might say the president and some might, you know, say a businessman or a billionaire. Like, would you say, I want to do something in computers? Right from high school, I wanted to do something in computers. Like that was what I got excited about. That's what I wanted to study. And when I was looking at colleges, you know, I was only focused on, okay, what are the best colleges for computer science? And that was my criteria. And so you decide to go to to the West Coast, to Stanford. Yeah, um, this is like the beginning of the dot-com boom, like dot-com <laughs> 1.0. Did you get that feeling that was that, I don't know, was that energy present on campus in 1994? So that energy of starting a company and the company starting around you and that dot-com boom, I mean, that was all around you, especially by 1996, 1997. I mean, there was Excite, there was Yahoo, there was so many different companies. And that idea that you were a computer scientist and you could go start a company was absolutely in the air. Because 1994, an important year, right, the year Netscape, the Netscape browser comes out for mass use. Do you remember using the web for the first time? I mean, I don't remember the exact moment I used the web for the first time, but I remember that my year, 1994, freshman year, was the first year everybody had email. All my high school friends had email, and it just changed everything. Like, that time in in computer technology was just this mass shift to introducing that consumer to all of this content and communications that nobody had access to prior. I guess, like, in your first year... You met somebody who was who would go on to be an important <laughs> business co-founder and partner um, later on, a guy named Al Lieb. How did you how did you meet him? So I lived in an all freshman dorm called Branner, and two doors down from me was this guy Al, and he was from Wisconsin. He was a swimmer, but he loved computers, and he was always 
building stuff and this will this will age us but we worked on the first yearbook that was going to be digital instead of physical we put it on a multimedia cd and distributed it to all the Branner <laughs> freshmen <laughs> and it was just photos and you would put the cd in and there's your yearbook yeah exactly <laughs> so you now like you work on this yearbook and then did you just continue to kind of talk about ideas or so i had a little blip which was i took a computer science class in my freshman year and i didn't do that well hmm. and i got a little nervous which is is this the right field for me and that summer i got a job which was what i thought was going to be databasing activity in the mall and it turned out i was the mall greeter where i would literally stand there and say welcome to paramus park <laughs> Hmm. And I was complaining about it to my friend's dad. He ran the IT department for an investment bank called Warburg Pincus. And he said, quit your mall job, come intern for me. And I had the most amazing summer experience. I helped build one of the first websites for this investment bank. We built this application called Morning Meeting Notes to help them you know, uh, record all their Monday meetings. And I fell back in love with computer science. Hmm. And it was really then my sophomore year that I went full steam ahead on CS. It was once I saw using computer science in the real world and I saw I was I reaffirmed that I was good at it. You know, when you, you walk into Stanford and all of a sudden, you know, you have been the valedictorian and you've been the best student in your class. And then you walk in and all of a sudden you're average. And it makes you question in the sense of like, oh, am I going to be good at this when I get out into the real world? And having that summer experience, I saw I can do this. I can make this work. And I love it. So you go back to Stanford. Yeah. And what happens? You know, I kept in touch with Al. We weren't actually computer partners. He liked to work alone. Most of our projects he did with three people. And Al definitely was somebody who said, I'm faster doing it by myself. Um, and so we didn't necessarily work together on projects in our sophomore year. And then in my junior year, I went and studied abroad in Berlin. And I was supposed to be there for two quarters, my fall quarter and my winter quarter. And my your winter quarter is supposed to be an internship. And so I was talking to all these German companies. And I get this email from Al and says, hey, I'm thinking about starting a company. You're, you're the first person I thought of. Do you want to do it together? And I thought and I looked, I said, there's so much going on in Silicon Valley. There's no technology going on in Berlin. There was no internship I was excited about. And I said, yes. And I came back to Stanford for the winter and we started planning. What was his idea? So <laughs> we had, at the time, a pretty terrible idea. Our company was actually called OodleWorks, which stood for Object-Oriented Template Language. <laughs> and we had this idea that we were going to help other people code using graphics. We were going to democratize coding to everybody. And we tested it with a bunch of our other friends and just said, okay, you're not a computer scientist. Like, can you use this? Can you try it out? And so it was kind of that early form of user testing. And it was very clearly and quickly that it wasn't that useful. And people who weren't computer scientists weren't actually that interested in coding. But we weren't ready to just give up on starting a company because there was so much excitement about starting the company. And that we had really little to lose at that time. I mean, I was still in college. He had just graduated. You know, our expenses weren't high. And so this idea of we're just going to keep working until we find an idea that works. And that was the mode we were in. And what were you guys actually doing? Like, take me into the, the brain center of that company. Were you just sitting <laughs> at your computers and tapping away at keys? We would brainstorm and we would go back and forth and talk about different ideas. And then, yeah, then we'd like 
sit down and we just code and we code all day and then I'd go to class and then I'd come back and code and um, um, but we had just a few different ideas and we landed then sometime in kind of late 97 early 98 on this idea called collage what was that so the idea behind collage was that you had now all this information on the web. You know, you would go on Netscape and you had your hometown newspaper. You had ESPN Sports, which you might love. You might have the latest recipe of the day on the Food Network. And the idea was is that you could clip together stuff from all over the web, create your own homepage, and then algorithmically we would update it for you as things updated. And this was before my Yahoo, before that concept of creating a homepage. And that was our vision and our idea. And the concept was is you'd wake up every morning and you'd come see the information that was relevant and important to you. Yeah. And so, like, to build collage, I'm assuming it probably didn't cost you that much because it was just your time, right? Yeah. So we had in, in, had spent $299 on a fry server, and that was our only cost and then our little tiny office space. And the rest of it was just time. And we were, you know, living with a – I was living with a bunch of roommates, and we used to actually have like a $5 a day budget we set for ourselves for lunch for both of us. <laughs> and we would try to game it to like get enough food. So, I mean – did you guys manage to like create a really working product, like a web app? Or, wait, we weren't calling them web apps, but a site. Yeah, that so we created this site that you would go to. You'd create your collage page, and then you could bookmark it. And you could every day you could come back or a few times a day, and you'd get updates on it, whether it was your stocks, whether it was your weather, whether it was your local news, the national news. And we started to get some consumers on it, but we also started to see the portals. We started to see Yahoo, Excite. Um, really, those were the two big ones really starting to take off. And we thought, oh, okay, this is really interesting because these are becoming people's homepages, but they're not personalized. They're generic. <laughs> so no matter who you were, you would get the same article on the front page. So that we thought, oh, our homepage is way better, right? We're letting you customize it for you. And so let's go talk to them and see if they'd be interested in buying our product. All right. But how does a senior in college and a recent graduate <laughs> like get that meeting? Or maybe it was easier then. So, yeah. No, that is the beauty of the Stanford Network. You know, these are the things that that you you can't discount when you think about privilege that people have is like you reach out to, you know, an executive at Excite and their executive at Yahoo and you say, I'm the senior from Stanford. You know, we'd love to talk to you about a product we built. And they take the meeting. Huh. So that's what happened. Like you or Al or both of you like approached whoever was running Excite and said, hey, can we talk? It was. Yeah. We approached Joe Krause, Craig Donato, like all these guys, and we said, hey, like, we want to talk to you about this product we've built, and uh, we want to come demo it for you. And they're like, sure, come show it to us. So when you went to Excite, what did you do? You sh you'd kind of walked them through what, what you created, and what was their reaction? So we walked them through what we created, and their reaction was like, wow, this is really cool. We can see our users would love this concept <laughs> of personalization, and that wasn't there yet on the Internet. Yeah. Um, and it's just obviously so foreign to what's there today. But if you think about the Internet in 1997, 1998, it was mainly content sites. Hmm. So, all right, just, just to pause here for a sec. You were a senior in college, and you're, like, in the boardroom of Excite with Al, who had graduated like a semester before you, and 
you've got a, you've got this like business thing going. Did you at any moment think uh, when I graduate I have to get like a stable real job, or did you think all right I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and do this because this is like at a time I mean now everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but like. In 1998, it wasn't so clear-cut. Like, there wasn't much of a template, right? So I will always remember this day. There was the Stanford Job Fair, and I was at work, and we were renting this, you know, tiny office space. And I called my dad. And whenever I have issues or questions, even to this day, I call my dad. And I said, hey, dad, you know, I don't know whether to go to the Stanford Job Fair. And he said three things to me. He asked me three questions. He said, do you like working with Al? And I was like, yeah, it's great. I'm, you know, I learned a ton from him. We challenge each other. It's fun. And then he said, do you enjoy what you're working on? I was like, yeah, I really think we're going to, like, help people use the web better. I love the product. I love the mission. And he said, are you learning? And I was like, absolutely. Like, I, I'm learning faster than I think I would in any other situation. And he said, what's the harm in taking the risk? Like, don't look back. Go put your whole heart into it and go after it. And I have used those same three criteria, which is people first, you know, product slash mission, and what am I going to learn in every business and career decision I've made since then. So you decide, all right, we're going to make a go at this. You're at Excite, and they are, sorry, excited about this, this (laughs) thing that you guys build, collage. And what do they say? Do they say, hey, you know, we want to buy you. We want to work with us. What, What was their response? So we go ahead and sign this business deal with them, which in retrospect was horrible. But we licensed our technology and product to them exclusively. So we gave them this huge window of time that they had exclusivity. And that meant we couldn't actually go work with slash sell it to anybody else in that time frame. So just let let me try to understand this. You guys go in there with no one to kind of guide you through the process and they say, hey, we want to license this, and here's some money. And you guys are like, great, let's do it. Yeah, I, I think the check was like fifty dollars or $55,000 that we were going to get for the licensing when it launched. Sounds like insane which was money. Huge right? for us. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, yeah. that's like an amazing amount of yeah. money. And, um, and so we like signed. And, of course, later, you know, when I talked to my dad about it, he's like, you signed what? Like, <laughs> what were the terms? <laughs> and um, But we had no idea. Like, we were just so excited about it. So, so you guys signed this licensing deal with Excite. They give you a $50,000 check, which is... More money than you've ever seen in your life. They don't give it to us. Oh. They weren't going to give it to us until we launched. And oh. that's another story. Wait. Oh, so you did. Gotcha. Okay. So they didn't give you the check. They give you the promise of a check once they launch. Yeah. Until they launched or until I think it was like in November of 1998. So your job is to help them launch this thing out into the world. So what yes. were you guys doing in 1998? Were you going into the Excite offices and trying to make that happen? I was literally going there every day and I would talk to the different product managers who were in charge of the homepage and I would show it to them and I like got to know people there and we kept making moving it forward to try to get it out the door and we were very close. But what happened? We're doing this final review with the executive team and at this point now they have a lawyer. And the lawyer comes in the room and says, you can't just steal this content from all these different websites. <laughs> like, you, you have to, we have to go license this content from people. We have to go have these business conversations. And then all of a sudden, it was just dead in the water. Wow. Wait, so it's dead in the water. But does, does that mean you guys can take collage back and try and retool it and sell it somewhere else? 
No, because we had signed this agreement that it was exclusive until November of 1998. So we said, okay, we need to like let that go until then, and we need to work on other things. And so this was in like the early summer, um, and we started building other products. So you ended up getting nothing from Excite. Oh, so eventually, when the expiration date came around, I, you know, called and I said, hey, you guys owe us this money. And um, and we had no money. And so it meant a lot to us. Yeah. So every day I'd call and I'd call. And this poor admin started to feel bad for me. And she said, okay, I see your agreement. I'm going to go into my boss and I'm going to try to get your check. And eventually she got the check for us. And I think I sent her flowers because she was so excited that she got this check for us. So you walk away from Excite with 50000 bucks, but no product. And Excite, for the record, does not exist anymore, right? I th- no, it- no. They got bought by At Home eventually. Is that still around? I don't think so either. <laughs> <laughs> God. I love this period. Uh, I love this like period in internet <laughs> history because like, so many of these companies were massive, and then we don't even remember them. Um, all right. So you and Al go back to the drawing board. By the way, were you, were you guys like crushed? When it was clear that they were not going to put, you know, bring collage out into the world? So we had gone back to the drawing board much earlier because we saw that, okay, we signed this business deal. We can keep trying to get them to do it. But in between, we need more ideas. We need more products. And so that summer, before even the November, we started building more products. This is the summer of 98. Summer of 98, we were in this, like, small office space on California Avenue, and a lot of the people in our building were these, like, small consulting shops. This is in Palo Alto. This is in Palo Alto. And we started to think, we said, okay, how are all these consultants scheduling their meetings and scheduling their tasks with all of their clients? Because at this time, there wasn't this, like, web-based mail, web-based calendaring. Um, Everything was just internal to your company. So we built this product, Web To Do and WebCal, hmm. and we were gonna we were gonna go sell this product into companies. This was gonna be like what Google Calendar is today. Yeah, so it was almost like the Calendarly and Google Calendar, and so we built out these apps. We put on dress clothes. I still remember, like, we got, both of us got a suit. And we said, okay, we're going to go sell this to people. (laughs) And we went to this big consulting shop, and we did the whole pitch. And this guy says to us, he says, so you're telling me if I want to schedule a meeting, I have to send it to Boston. Like send it to Boston. He's like, well, that's where my computers are that run that run our servers. <laughs> and we were like, no, it goes over the internet. He's like, no, no, if it goes over the internet, that what does that mean? That's not going to work. The servers are in Boston. And so we go back and forth in this discussion, and we leave there. And, and as we're leaving, Al takes off his tie and he throws it, and he says, that's it. And Al's the calmest person you'll ever meet in the world. And so this was like, he said, that's it. We're going to figure out and do something for the consumers. And so we go to the grocery store, which is where we had lunch most days, because that was the easiest place to find cheap food. We're sitting outside and we said, oh, well, what if we take this web calendar thing and we let consumers do it? Let them organize stuff with their friends. And that was the birth of Evite. And this was July, August 1998. So so you had gone to like businesses. You were thinking this is going to be a B2B product. And when you get that pushback, you both sort of decide to hell with these businesses. Let's just put it out into the world and see if just ordinary people want to use it. 
That's exactly right. We started selling to businesses and we just knew, we said, this is not the people we want to work with. We want to be consumers. We want to scale. And, you know, the part of what I've always loved about technology is this idea that you can use technology and reach millions and millions of people. And just that's why I've always been focused on consumers. And just to kind of be clear, like Eva, it was and is, but but then... I'm assuming it's similar to what it is now, which is you could get a template and design a cool digital invitation that would kind of be emailed to somebody and then they would open it up as an attachment. So you would receive an email. And one of the learnings we had was you couldn't put the information in the email because then nobody would click through. So we put enough information in the email to entice you, and then you would click through, and you would come to this page to RSVP. And it was that was the main function, was finding out who was coming. And we built other features on the ability to do potlucks, the ability to take different payment from different people, to give a gift. I mean, there was a lot of it. But at the core base, Evite was always a place to find out who was coming. So you would go to the site and there'd be these different channels like baby shower, happy hour, mm-hmm. sporting event, fundraiser for schools. And that that made it easy to kind of – that was a template that made it easy for you to just like pick some graphics and then send it out. Exactly. So you as the creator would pick you know, your category and then that would trigger a whole bunch of other stuff. Was there anything out there like it at the time? Not when we first launched. There was nothing that we knew about like it. And then – after we launched, there was service after service after service. See you there, Time Dance, right. um, when.com. There was so many competitors that came, what we believe was after us. All right. So in July, I guess, of 98, you guys launch Evite. You launched this new product. How did you launch it? Did you just, was it just a web page that you just put out into the world? It was a web app. We just put it out. um, And it was called Evite right from the beginning. And the first Evite was my indoor soccer team, which goes back to the fact that I'm not that athletic, but I always (laughs) love team sports. And uh, and I invited my team. And then we actually had to go back to our consulting because we had to make money. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, you guys were consulting on the side, right? Like, Like coding projects for other companies. Yeah. So we were contracting on the side to try to make our ends meet. Yeah. And we were working on this project. And I'm very, very clumsy. We have this fry server underneath our desk, and I actually trip over the cable. And the phone rings, and somebody calls and says, like, hey, what happened to Evite? And so we plug it back in, and we turn it on. And we realize at this, at this moment that Evite itself had been growing. You know, someone from the indoor soccer team used it and invited somebody else, and they invited somebody else. And this was way before the concept of viral marketing was a word, but it was built into the product. This product virality was there, and it was built naturally into the way Evite worked. And the only, I guess, presumably the only way to get it some attention is to start using it yourself, to send it out to your friends. You send it out to your soccer crew. But then how did other people find out about it? With the way that Evite was designed, by nature, as soon as you send one, there was an average of 18 other people that found out about it. And then one of those people just had to say, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to go ahead and create an Evite. And then they kept spreading. So so the idea was to get people to use it instead of paper invitations or just an email because people still did paper invitations in 1998. Our, we had a tagline on one of our T-shirts in 2000 that said, paper invitations are so 90s. <laughs> <laughs> But the future was going to be electronic, and no one was going to send out paper. And so this was a way to do it, and it was going to be for free. Yeah. When you look at that time and that dot-com boom, 
everything was for free. You had email that had just come out, which was like Yahoo Mail, Excite Mail, Hotmail, which was the big one. Yeah. And then there was the beginning of the instant messenger platforms that were messaging back and forth. So if you think that when you look at what had happened to the internet, it had started out as this content where all people were doing was consuming information. And then as the pipe started to get bigger, as people started to get more comfortable, it started to more veer towards communication and commerce. And that was sort of the big lift in the dot-com boom where people started to buy things. You had pets.com, you had stamps.com, and then people started to communicate using email, instant messenger, products like Evite. Um, and that was the really the influx of that dot-com boom. So you and L had had this kind of, let's say, bad experience with Excite, right? Because you licensed this thing you built. It didn't work out. You, you really kind of walked away from that with very little. Um, this time around, I'm assuming you wanted to be a little wiser and to do it um, on your terms. Yeah. So this time around, you know, we had this product which was kind of growing on its own and we were getting excited about it. And I, you know, tell my parents and my mom actually uses it to invite people to Thanksgiving. We always had this huge Thanksgiving because she invited all the Indian families all around who had nowhere to go. And she used it and she said, wow, this thing is really cool. And my dad was out on the West Coast on a business trip and he sits us down and he said, hey, you know, you guys really need to hire someone who is a business person. Hmm. And um, a couple months later, we met a guy named Josh Silverman and he was Stanford Business School and he'd written a business plan for this company. I think it was called To Gather, which was basically Evite. Hmm. And uh, we met up and it was like he had the business skills and the business idea. We had the product in tech and it was just so such this match where you were complementing each other's skill sets. And we knew we didn't have the skill set of how do we raise money? How do we actually build a team? I mean, we were this was our first job out of college. And Josh was coming, you know, out of business school, but with business experience prior to that as well. And so he joined as our CEO. So what was the, the idea at this point? Was the idea that we got to make this big. If we were going to make this big, we need money because we got to hire people. And so how are you going to do that? So Josh had the network of venture capitalists and the concept understood fundraising and that market. And so, you know, when we saw is like, okay, this is an idea that we can go raise capital on. This is an idea that can become huge. And so he helped us raise money. And we raised our first financing round, $5.7 million from August Capital. There's a story told about this era in Silicon Valley, and I don't know whether it's entirely accurate or maybe it is, that early venture capital firms or, or the existing ones were really ready to just throw money at whatever seemed attractive or interesting, like it was kind of a free-for-all. Is, was that your impression? Was it pretty easy to convince uh, you know, venture firms to, to give you money? In that year... And this is 99, right? Yeah. We raised $37 million for online invitations. Like, it's crazy when you look back at it. And all of the venture capitalists at the time, they were focused on this metric, eyeballs. How many eyeballs do you have? How many? And that meant, like, how many people are actually visiting your site? What's your growth in terms of actual just unique visitors? The conversation was never about revenue and never about how much sales do you have on the other side of it. It was just how big can you grow this free product? So when the VC firms were asking you these questions, no one ever or very few people asked you, oh, how are you guys going to make money? So for all of these free sites at the time, I mean, the 
advertising was the core business model. And so the very much the understanding was is that you grow your traffic and you get to enough traffic and you can start to get advertisers. And there was this still unproven of how much were brands willing to pay for that digital advertising. How big was it? How many eyeballs did you have when you were when you were raising that kind of money? In the first year, we had at least a million users using the product. Do you, do you remember what the company was valued at that point? I would assume it was definitely over 100, 150 million. Wow. Did, was that crazy? I mean, you were like 22, 23. It was so crazy and also was so much on paper that it never really hit you because, you know, we were still living with, I was living with like four different roommates um, and we're working literally six, seven days a week, sleeping at the office a bunch. Like we're so focused on just building the product and building the company and building the team that the financial part of it never really struck you because you weren't, it's not like you were out there like spending this money you didn't have or spending this money that was on paper. So with that $37 million in funding, what did that mean? I mean, did, did you guys get a big office and, and start to hire up? So, yeah. So we had this big office on 17th and Alabama. And when you looked at that area in Petrero, there was Spinner.com. There was like so many this different This is in San Francisco. Com- this is all in San Francisco. And it was one of those warehouses that used to be a sewing factory. And this was after we had had like a middle office in San Mateo with a bunch of inflatable furniture as we were still on the path to raising money. Um, but yeah, that's what you did. And you built out your office and then you started hiring people in all these different departments, engineering and product and design and analytics, marketing, and really started building out a company. So by sort of December 99, early 2000, when you're getting, you know, a million plus hits on the site, um, did, did you start to attract advertisers? So we did start to attract advertisers. And one of the things we actually did right was we decided to go try and partner with brands. And this was really more Josh than, than Al and I um, and this other guy, Jim Benton. And they went and they got, I remember, like Finlandia Vodka to go sponsor um, the Happy Hour channel and then Pampers to sponsor the Baby Shower channel. And so we got real brands and then built this like integrated experience with them, including like like you'd respond to your Evite and you'd get this full page ad that we could make interactive for them. All right. So you guys have this thing going. You've got advertisers interested. You've got some big brands who are involved. Does that mean that Evite by 2000 was starting to see significant revenue? No. So the thing is, is that even though we had some of these big brands, we were starting to see some revenue, but no way were we close to profitability. And you suddenly have 70, 75 people on your operating expense. And you know, yes, you've started to sell some of these really big and important brands, but they were all still trying to figure out how to price digital advertising. Right. Right. Nobody really had um, this sort of like, oh, the, the value of an impression on the web. How does that compare to TV? How does that compare to radio? And obviously that question still exists today to a certain degree, but there wasn't necessarily this whole like tracking infrastructure and all of that was still very nascent. But you had venture capital, which gave you guys a really, mm-hmm. presumably a really long runway. Yes. But even so, with 75 employees and you got rent to pay and server space and other costs, I mean, that money was mm-hmm. only going to last a certain amount of time. D- did you guys 
feel any pressure to kind of hit profitability, or were you not really worried about that just yet? So the way that the dot-com was at the time, which is it was, you know, eyeballs. It was like, can you spend your money faster? I still remember one of the VCs in the boardroom saying, we need a billboard on 101 to be real. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, like, then we'll put a billboard on 101, you know. And everything was about, like, you know, the growth and the traffic. And there was no discussion or talk about revenue. (laughs) And then the bubble burst. And all of a sudden, all anybody could talk about was, oh, my gosh, all these companies are bleeding money. How are we going to get them to profitability? How are we going to figure out whether these business models work? And just there was this huge shift in the middle of 2000. And that was the bubble that burst. And like it literally felt like it was overnight, like one day or one month that was spend more money. And the next month it was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? It, it was literally overnight like that. Like you had, it didn't feel gradual. It went from spend, spend, spend to, oh, my gosh, we need to fire the team. When we come back, how Selena and Al broke some very bad news to their colleagues and why they eventually decided to put Evite up for sale. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness. The research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio Tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, Copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This. I'm Guy Raz. So it's the year 2000. The dot-com bubble has burst, and Selena and her partner Al, they know they are going to have to make some very painful decisions because Silicon Valley, at this point, is basically in turmoil. So it wasn't just us, like it was the whole ecosystem and environment around us. You know, we had all those friends that were entrepreneurs and like, you know, we had all had these dinners with like the portfolios of all the venture capitalists. And they would invite all the founders and CEOs together and you would meet all these other people. And everybody was suddenly like it was like this huge wave of, oh, my gosh, what are we going to all do? And when the rubber meets the road, venture capitalists only focus is on their return and yeah. their multiple. And that was a huge learning for me at the time because, you know, Al and I 
could see of like, hey, we can strip the cost down. We can like get this business to profitability pretty quickly and then grow it over time. But as soon as they invest capital and they invest it at a specific multiple, unless they can see it getting to 3x, 5x, 10x that multiple, they don't care. At that point, the venture capitalists become focused on how do I get as much return of capital? How do I get out of this as quickly as possible? Because they're valuing their time as well. Was that, I mean, it, it sounds like it was a revelation. And, I, and of course, yes, we now know that that's what venture capitalists want. They want they want a return. And, and many times they'll say, oh, no, we're in it for the long haul. But actually, they really want a short-term return or maybe a medium-term exactly. return. Right. Was that like a gut punch to realize that? Definitely. I mean, we were inexperienced entrepreneurs and you know, you, you're you thinking about, I've poured my heart and soul into this product. I've poured my heart and soul into this company and this team. And, you know, the venture capitalists are focused on what their return is. And that is what they should be focused on because their responsibility ultimately is towards their LPs and their funds. And that's what we want them focused on in yeah. order to make the whole economy work. And so it wasn't just like, us and it wasn't just our company, but there was this definite, you know, as it felt like instantaneous shift to we need to figure out what's going to happen to the economy. We need to figure out what's going to happen to all of our investments. So clearly you knew once the writing was on the wall, it was clear that Evite was going to have to lay off people on, on it seemed to 70, 75 people. I mean, you knew that people were going to lose mm -hmm. their jobs. Yes. The, the laying off people was one of the toughest days in my career, even to this point. And because the team had done nothing wrong, right? Like they had worked hard. They had put their energy into the product. They'd helped. They did what we asked them to do. Like we were actually executing really well. Like I said, there were tons of competitors around us that were doing almost the same thing, but yet we were growing the fastest. We were the best well-known brand. And so to feel like that we then had to go into these rooms and lay them off was a really, really tough thing. And trying to get the right severance package with them from the board, and I still remember all of those arguments as well. And, um, and eventually, you know, like getting to a place where you felt, okay, we're gonna treat people as good as we can. But it was hard because people had put their faith in you to grow the business. And they made the decision to come work at Evite versus other jobs. So you guys, I guess, had to lay off more than half of the people who worked at the company. Mm -hmm. We went down from 73 to 28. Wow. And those numbers are like stuck in my head. <laughs> and um, so there was actually this website at the time, and it was called company. And every day they would be publishing articles about which company was doing the layoff that day. And mm. they somehow knew about it before any of the other employees had known about it, you would think, and where the firing party was going to be after the team was let go. Hmm. And did they find out about you guys eventually? Yeah, they and <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we you tried to keep this like tight lid on it, but of course, like you had to schedule meetings for everybody and like put them in rooms and um and so as soon as those meeting invites went out, like it would get published on company immediately. Um, I guess around that same time, November of two thousand, the board or, or the team decided to put an ad in the Wall Street Journal that said, uh, "We're up for sale. We're looking for a buyer." 
Yeah, we knew people loved the brand and people recognized the brand. And so we said, look, like, let's put it out there and let's do something bold. And we did. And that did bring multiple buyers to the table. Why did you, I mean, even after the layoffs, why did the company think that it needed to sell? Couldn't it have continued with like a thinner staff and just, you know, sort of try to save money and and keep it going? We definitely could have continued with a thinner staff. But the main concern was from the venture capitalists in the sense that they are looking at, can this become a billion-dollar valued business? And given that all of a sudden valuations had fallen through the floor, from their perspective, they wanted to sell the business. And Al and I didn't control the company at that point anymore. Hmm. So the company goes up for sale. You get lots of suitors, I guess, (laughs) or some suitors or some interest. And not that long after, March of 2001, Evite sold. It was sold to- April of 2001, yeah. I guess it was Ticketmaster at the time, but which is now part of IAC. Yeah, we sold uh, the Ticketmaster City Search. And it was just this very, this concept that, you know, Ticketmaster was going to be your big events, you know, the Michael Jacksons. City Search was going to be your local events. And Evite was going to be your personal events. And it was this, like, brand portfolio um, that we joined. And it was a really nice fit for what they were trying to do. Were you happy with that decision? You know, for me... I had invested so much of myself and I think so much of my time into the product. And as it became clear that it made no financial sense to continue with this as a business, I was very focused on how do we find a good home? How do we make sure that the product lives on? Because that was part of what you felt for these 73 people who had worked there. You know, people had put their time into designing the product or marketing the product or looking at how do we grow the product. And you wanted that product to live. And that was really a huge focus for me um, when we were trying to sell the business. So what happened after it was sold? I mean, you got the scale down company. Presumably you and Al become employees of Ticketmaster City Search. So actually only two of us went with the deal, myself and this other guy, Jim, who was in charge of all of the advertising relationships. And so we were literally moving the company down to LA and we were going to rebuild. We were going to hire a new management team for Evite. We were going to rebuild the engineers. And there were really only Jim and I that went with the deal. When the company was sold for, I think for an estimated $25 million, um, were, were you and Al, I mean, because, you know, on paper, at least a year before that, you, you would have been set for life. Um, but when you sold, were you set for life financially when that deal came through? We were not set for life financially. I mean, it was a very, you know, when we look back, obviously, it would have been much better for us to have sold the business in the peak of the business, which, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Sure. Um, so, you know, we got something out of the deal and we had this great experience and we were, you know, I think I was like 25 or 26 years old and, and had this great job to land into. But no, it wasn't suddenly that we were, you know, filthy rich and, you know, buying Lamborghinis. Not that I would do that anyway. <laughs> so, you, so you become an employee of this new company, you were essentially working for Ticketmaster. And how did it feel to work in a bigger corporate environment at that point? You know, it was, it was, it was, I had never really had 
had a job in a sense where, you know, yes, Josh was my boss and he gave us feedback and, and but it was always felt like a peer relationship because we were still the founders of the company and we were very collaborative. And it was just so different to go into an environment where all of a sudden I was like an employee. Like I, I had never experienced it before. And um, for the first like eight months, it was this position where I was like trying to build a team and then I was supposed to leave. But in my time there, I got to know the CEO and the CTO at Ticketmaster. And I actually was enjoying what Ticketmaster was doing, which was like bringing people to live events. And I was like, these are people I can learn from. And the bubble had burst up here. And so, you know, in Silicon Valley, it was not that same like wave of innovation. And I thought, okay, like I'm going to go spend a year at a bigger company and I want to learn from these guys. Um, My initial intention was go there for one year, like get some experience and then come back up to the valley. So you went on to work for Ticketmaster involved in the ticket sales business. You had I guess by 2002, you really had nothing to do with Evite anymore. That's exactly right. Was that weird? I mean, you 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 had built <laughs> it in like a dorm room, and and Evite was like totally in the rearview mirror. Evite was mostly in the rearview mirror. You know, I'd still um, the the guy who was in charge of it actually for most of that time was a gentleman named John Foley, who's now the CEO of Peloton. Sure. And he was he's a wonderful guy. And, you know, so it would still catch up with him every so often and see how it was doing. And even today, um, there's the gentleman in charge of Evite Victor, you know, every so often we'll go grab a coffee and he'll tell me how it's doing. And he gives me swag. And I went and I did their um, International Women's Day and talked to their team um, because they were excited to have a, a female founder. But in terms of my learning and like my time to move on, it was the right time. So you end up staying there for six years, I think. Mm-hmm. So what made you decide that you wanted to finally leave Ticketmaster? So there were a couple factors, but the biggest was that Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation. And it was, for me, the people and the culture is the most important thing. And it was very clear to me that the culture of the team that was coming over wasn't exactly what I wanted. Hmm. But the second big thing is I was traveling 60 to 70 percent of the time because we had businesses in Norway, Sweden, Italy, Germany. And um, I wanted to become a mom. And I didn't want to travel that much. So I had the very great fortune of meeting a gentleman named Dave Goldberg, um, who is the CEO of SurveyMonkey. And I joined as the president and CTO of SurveyMonkey in October of 2009. What was the decision that, I mean, you wanted to be a mom, you said, and why was that the right company to go to? So... Dave, and I'll tell you more about Dave, but he was just a fantastic mentor, a fantastic leader, and just had this vision for what we could do and what we could build together. And two days before I interviewed at SurveyMonkey, I was like, huh, something doesn't feel quite right. And I, uh, I peed on a stick, and, I was, and it came positive. Huh. And I was thinking, what should I do? Should I still go to this interview? Like, I'm already pregnant. And I went for the interview. And I was living in London. I was flying back to London, and Dave had, had even upgraded me, which was like my first time. <laughs> I was in, in first class, and I was like, wow, they give me pajamas. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I land, and I check my BlackBerry, and there's an offer from Dave in my inbox. <laughs> what am I going to do? So I call my dad. I said, Dad, what should I do? And he said, put it all in one email. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you have to negotiate. You know, you need to negotiate your offer. So negotiate your offer and tell them you're pregnant all in one email. It gives them an out. 
And I thought, okay. Um, so, you know, I sent him, like, number one, like, you know, I will want more equity. Number two, I'm in the exec staff for Europe, so I can't start for at least three months. And number three, I have early signs of pregnancy. And Dave wrote me back, I think within eight minutes. And he wrote why he was going to build a culture at SurveyMonkey that was going to be great for <laughs> families. And yet, we were going to build a really, really big business. And you know what? We did both of those things. <laughs> did it feel like the kind of place you were going to spend the rest of your career at? <laughs> so Dave wasn't a big believer in performance reviews and HR and sitting down. But once a year, he would take me out to lunch. And he would always say, this is what you need to do to become a CEO. And in February of 2015, he said to me, he said, you know, now you're ready to be a CEO. It's just your choice. And I remember looking at him and saying, Dave, there's, being your number two is the best job I could ever have. Hmm. And so I did think I was going to you know, be at SurveyMonkey for a really, really long time. Not too long after that conversation, he, he passed away. It was suddenly... Um, it happened suddenly, and uh, many people remember uh, his wife, Cheryl Sandberg's beautiful remarks at his funeral and also the things that she wrote publicly about that. Um, at that point, did you did you feel like you weren't going to stay at the company once, once he was gone? You know, um, when there's such a big change with an executive at a company – Obviously, there's just a lot of change. So there, it's not like you initially know of like, this is the place I want to be. This is the place I don't want to be. It depends what happens with leadership. And so eventually it became clear to me that that wasn't a place I wanted to be anymore and that I was ready to move on. And part of it was I was inspired to do something in health and wellness <laughs> after really taking a step back and looking and thinking about what happened to Dave. And fortunately enough, the timing was perfect with Al. This is my same co-founder from Evite. And we had had, you know, a couple lunches and getting together since about November. And we had talked about, hey, you know, like, would you be open to doing something again? And for both of us, the timing was just perfect. You hadn't launched a startup since 1998, <laughs> right? Um, and I guess in 2016, you thought, you decided, you know, I want to go back to a startup. I want to try this again. What you know, this is now your third or fourth startup together, right? I mean, if you go back to Collage and <laughs> and what was, a, what was a company called with a weird name? Oodleworks. Oodleworks, <laughs> right. You, you, so, like, you guys have been to that rodeo before you're back. So did you, at this point, did you guys say, all right, we're going to do it different differently this time, the way we, <laughs> we launched this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so initially, we were going to take a different approach in terms of we wanted to validate product market fit of an idea first. You know, we were in a very different position where, you know, when I was 22 years old, there was no opportunity cost, right? So it was like, if I was going to start a company and I was going to code in a room, you know, I didn't have responsibilities. I didn't have children. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have other opportunities at my doorstep that I could also learn a lot and do a great deal with. And so we said, okay, We're going to give ourselves 2016 to prototype and user test a couple of products. And if one of the products tests well and we come up with an idea that we're excited about where we could bring our expertise to the table, if we come up with something that we then can go raise capital on, we'll do that. But until then, we'll sort of fund it ourselves. And so that was kind of the different approach that we took. So you you and Al, um, I mean, you're inspired to do something in health and and wellness. I guess you start this thing called Gixo. which is like a, an exercise app? Yeah. You know, 
like getting people to exercise is hard. Like exercise is something that people have a tough relationship with. Um, it's not something for, you know, I didn't exercise for six and a half years while I was at SurveyMonkey. The only thing I ever did was like walk from my car to the train station. And you don't prioritize it because it doesn't seem fun. And so we saw this big opportunity where can we develop a live group fitness class that's delivered via your phone and make it a great experience and make it disruptively cheap, which is what technology can do. And so that was our idea. And, you know, the thing that is definitely working for us is when people try our product, they're using it, they're loving it, we're getting good engagement. Once we get people to try the product, we've had really, really good results for them. Does it feel, this time around, doing a startup with a lot of experience, executive experience under your belt, and then earlier startup experience in your 20s now, you're a parent and you're a little older, and does it feel, is the excitement different? Is the experience radically different from what it was like in your early 20s? You know, the experience is pretty different in a number of ways. The first thing is, is that you understand more in terms of your responsibility as a leader. This is my first time actually being in the CEO chair. And, you know, everyone always says is like, oh, you know, it's like it's it's harder than you think. And it is more stressful than you actually initially imagine versus having always Dave there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so the responsibility when I was at Evite didn't really hit me until we had to lay the people off. You know, like, hmm. and then all of a sudden you were like, oh, my goodness, like these people have been entrusted in me. But you, you, you didn't you didn't feel it in the same way. I would say that then the, the other piece of it, though, is like when you do have these other priorities in terms of your family and your kids, you have that ability to not just do it by sheer hard work. Like when you were young, you know, we were working six, seven days a week. We were coding all night. We we're sleeping in the office. And like that is not an option. But you have a lot more experience under your belt so you can do things faster, you know? So like that is the trade-off. When you think about uh, where you have been, what you created and what you and Al built together, and even though Evite's not yours, is still around today and is still, you know, pretty significant. Do you think that that happened and, and you were able to find that success because of luck or because of your intelligence and the hard work you guys put into it? <laughs> I mean, if you think of luck as privilege, then I had a ton of it. You know, to be able to to have two parents who loved me unconditionally and sent me to Stanford without a penny of debt, I would say that's a huge amount of privilege that then you can work hard off of. So you would take luck and, and privilege, and privilege is an important idea. And a lot of people have written in to say, you know, when people say luck, they're not talking about privilege, and not enough people do. You would sort of make the case that that had and has had a lot to do with your success. Privilege has had an outsized impact on my success. Do you, when you see it today or when you get an Evite or when you hear somebody, because people will say, oh, I'll just send me an Evite, right? It's like, just Google it. Like, it's a, just a Xerox, this thing. Like, that's a thing. <laughs> it's a term. Do, do you feel like it's yours or, or does it feel like something totally separate? You know, when I hear somebody say, is like, oh, like, oh, just send me an Evite. And you realize that, well, they don't necessarily mean an actual Evite. They mean just an electronic imitation. Mm -hmm. You do feel a little twinge of 
being proud, right? Because you think, you know, you put a word into the vernacular. And, you know, when suddenly, like, years later, your kids hear from somebody as like, oh, you know, your mom started Evite. And they've heard of Evite. And they're like, what, mom? Like, you started that? You know, it's like you feel that sense of pride from having built something and innovated. And it's exciting. That's Selena Tabakawala. She's the co-founder of Evite and Gigso. And since I last spoke with Selena, she and Al actually sold Gigso to a company called OpenFit, and she's now working there as chief digital officer. And by the way, a few years ago, Evite marked the two billionth invitation sent out using its platform, and it remains one of the largest online invitation sites today. please do stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick message from one of our sponsors, MailChimp. So you want to grow your business, now what? MailChimp's all-in-one marketing platform, that's what. It has all the marketing stuff you need to grow all in one place. Learn more at MailChimp.com. The world is complicated, but knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come in. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. Hey, thanks for sticking around, because it's time now for How You Built That. I had a love for ballet from a very young age. It was something that I really adored. Jamia Ramsey started taking ballet classes when she was growing up in Atlanta. When I first started, um, my mom took me to the dance store to buy my dance clothes. So I got the pink ballet shoes, the pink tights. Pink shoes and tights are the standard uniform ballerinas have been wearing for hundreds of years. But when Jamia was about 10 years old, she spent her summer training at the Dance Theater of Harlem run by the legendary Arthur Mitchell. He wanted to dispel the myth that black dancers couldn't do ballet. So it really felt great just to dance with other dancers who looked like me and also had on their own individual colors. Because at the Dance Theater of Harlem, ballerinas did not have to wear pink shoes or tights. They could wear tights and shoes that matched their own skin tones. But since no one made dance tights in darker colors, the company members had to dye them. They would use tea bags, and so basically just put them in the water, soak your tights in there, and the longer the tights sit in the tea, the darker they would get. But when Jamia went back to Atlanta, she had to put on the pink tights and shoes again. And it just always felt like I didn't belong. My upper half of my body was one color, and then when I look at the bottom half of my body, it didn't feel like a part of my body. And as Jamia kept dancing through high school and college, that feeling of frustration never left. So after she graduated, she decided to open a small dance studio for kids in her neighborhood. And she wanted the kids to wear their own colors. So she explained to the parents how to dye their tights and shoes. And I brought a photographer in for our first performance. But when I looked at the pictures, I'm like, oh, God, this looks god awful. The tights don't match the shoes. 
the shoes don't match the dancer, the tights don't match the dancer. It just didn't look good. So Jamia decided to find out if she could make her own shoes and tights for dancers of color. She took $4,000 in savings and she started to do some research. I would go to different studios just to see what most people's shades were and complexions were and try to match them up with different makeup. Jamia narrowed it down to four colors, brown, mahogany, cocoa, and tan. And she found a manufacturer in China who could make dance tights in those colors. It takes a lot of potion making <laughs> to make sure that the colors were just right. And then she found a manufacturer in Pakistan to make dance shoes to match the exact colors of the tights. She launched the apparel last December on her website, and already dancers are starting to perform in it. It's just amazing to see the beauty of all of those different skin tones together on stage. You know, it's just wonderful to you know, feel like, oh, maybe I'm inspiring the next dancer. It's a great feeling. Jamia's brand is called Blends, spelled with a Z at the end. She's still in the very early stages of the business, but she's made about $50,000 in sales so far. By the way, Jamia was selected as a How I Built This Fellow at our summit in San Francisco, where she won the competition to be on this podcast. If you want to find out more about Blends or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. Our show was produced this week by J.C. Howard with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Candace Lim, Julia Carney, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Sequoia Carrillo. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. We live in a world, a country, and a moment in time where there's so much important news, and it is constantly changing. That's why Up First is here for you. It's NPR's daily morning news podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.